0: Well, our passage today is a great psalm of encouragement. It reminds us that God not only identifies with our fear, but he removes our fear. So let's stand for the reading of God's word together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord And inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter. In the day of trouble, he will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Please be seated. We're continuing in our series, a short series this summer. We have been looking at select psalms. And we have seen that these long-ago songs filled with promises for God's people are as applicable today, they are as relevant today as any solution that human reason has been able to put before us. This morning, we are seeing that one thing that creates blues, as it were, or depression, or a weightiness upon us is anxiety and worry. And we're going to look at Psalm 27, and we're going to see that David, long ago, offers us a cure for anxiety and worry that cannot be found anywhere else in the world today. As modern as we are in our thinking, you can pick up any, and I do this all the time, if I see uh, a magazine, or if I'm reading in a journal, and I see the title that it It's addressing the subject of anxiety or worry or depression. I pick it up and I read it. And over and over again, it's distilled down to one strategy and one solution. And that is this don't think about the things so much, don't give them so much of your your mental attention. Don't worry. In fact, find a diversion. To just block it out of your mind. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. Don't, 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 don't don't think about it. Because it will probably never happen anyway. Your worst fears will probably not happen. In this psalm, you're going to see that on this subject of anxiety and worry, and I dare to say our fears, that can lead to either depression or overwhelm a, a sense of being overwhelmed and stressed, you're going to see in this psalm that David will have nothing to do with that modern-day solution because it does not work. Just thinking or just saying it's not going to happen now or in the future it does not prevent it from happening. Just trying to not think about it is, and be indifferent to a subject doesn't work very long. We're going to see that David is a realist. He looks at it now and he says it may very well happen in the future but he makes a promise to us in this long ago psalm. In this long ago song to the anxiety that we feel now. He says if you will look to the one thing with a singular eye if you will look to the Lord. Even with the backdrop, as it were, of all of these things that can make us anxious, if you'll switch your gaze from those things, not being indifferent to them, not being in denial, but those things that make you most anxious, if you'll switch your gaze from that, and as it says in verse 4, gaze upon the Lord. His beauty... His beauty will give you relief. And that's a promise. And if you look here in this text, he says in verse 4, and this is going to be my focus verse this morning. Time uh, does not permit me. This is a wonderful, wonderful psalm. This psalm has been used by more counselors to those that are struggling with suicidal thoughts and also those who have faced abandonment by their parents, or a parent, whether physical abandonment or emotional relational abandonment. As you see in verse 10, uh, counselors would use this where it says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. This is a counselor's verse. This is one that as Christians, when we, and love for others, would come alongside of them in their anxiety and in their worry. Please don't tell them. Just don't think about it. It may never happen. That's not enough. It's not going to, to be the cure for anxiety and worry. What we can do, though, is we can take them to Psalm 27 where God speaks to us today. And He tells us in verse 4, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, that doesn't sound very attractive. He's not talking about being in church all the days of my life, by the way. We'll see that in a minute. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, or that is meditate, in his temple. Now, before I go, and I want this to be very, very practical this morning, Before I go much further, I want you to know that Jesus Christ addressed anxiety. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, verse 25, we read these words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not of more value than you? The the principle, this principle is exacted over and over and over again. I can show it to you. From Genesis to the book of Revelation, in all 66 books of the Bible, this principle is this. If you are created by God, and you are, you, there is a way that you may know him as your Father. And as your Creator and as your Heavenly Father, you have value. And just like he sustains the grass and the birds how much more valuable are you to him because you're a son and you're a daughter. So in our worst fear, in our most anxious moment, when things are falling down around our heads, maybe we're even fearful for our very own life, we can say, I am his and he is mine. He is my Father and I am His child and He will not suffer one thing to befall me without it being for my good or His glory. And yet though there are fearful things around me, I will not fear for the Lord is with me not only as a creator, but as my Father. That's the sermon. That's the homily. And I'm done. But being good Presbyterians, I've got to show you how we get there because not only do we have not only do we have stuff you notice in verse 1 he says of whom shall i be afraid the lord is the stronghold of my life of whom shall i be afraid not only do we have issues such as how am i going to pay this month's light bill how am i going to meet the mortgage payment i'm going through a foreclosure if i can't get a job what do i there's not only issues subjects but they're also people. They're people that David says here, if you look at your outline, that they're very real enemies. I've put down, first of all, they're zombies. Look at verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. That's a zombie, right? So there's zombies in the Bible. Um, what in the world? You know, I don't, this is not abstract. Think about those of you who, particularly as you've returned to college now, as you've returned to college, there's, there's this tendency to, to kind of size everybody up and try to find my place in that system. And what we can do is we can look at one another and we begin to compare. You know what? She's got that, but I got this. Or he may be all of that, but I'm better than him in this. What we do is we take a bite out of them in order to elevate ourselves. And it's being done to us. And remember the apostle, remember uh, James talking about, you know, don't be so critical of one another. Don't be so critical of one another because if you keep devouring one another, you're just going to be devoured yourself. You're just going to gobble one another up. So it's like this stressor of relationships, of people taking a piece of me and me taking a piece of them, trying to not be so anxious about my station or my status or, or my being approved. Very real enemies. He does, David is a, a, is a realist. Also, you'll notice here he says in verse 3, "...though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear." He had real enemies. I mean, he had people with axes and swords and knives and shields and chariots. I mean, there were real armies on his border. There were real armies, real Philistines that would make raids upon his people. Don't you think that if David... This is not simply a song. It is not simply poetry. It is true. Don't you think that David, who could say... I've got armies that encamp against me. Don't you think if he found relief from his anxiety that we can too, no matter what we face, that there's something here? It boils down to verse 4 where he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. And where you look is very, very important because we have not only issues or people that can make us anxious, but there's something diabolical behind it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm going to read you a a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who preached on Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus commanded, commanded us, to do not be anxious or worry. That, to put some teeth into this, it is if you are a follower of God through Jesus Christ, or if you are a son and a daughter and can lay claim to God as your Father, it is a sin to be anxious and a sin to worry. A sin to be full of fear. Now, the Apostle Paul would say in Corinthians that he carries the, the burden or he's anxious after the saints. But he's not talking about being weighed down, so weighed down in heart and fretting. We, that would be to be indifferent and in denial. So some measure of concern bordering on anxiety, some measure of concern that it would lead us to pray and present with, with cries of of anguish and to plead with God, that's okay. But what we're talking about is debilitating anxiety, debilitating worry, debilitating fear is a sin if we claim that God is our Father. And it's a matter of seeing the one thing. It's a matter of where our our gaze is. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, It does not matter very much to Satan what form sin takes as long as he succeeds in his ultimate objective. What is the ultimate objective of Satan? I mean, if you're a Christian this morning, then Satan cannot have our soul. We believe that because we have been saved by God's wonderful mercy and grace, we're kept now and forever by that same mercy and grace so if you can't have my soul, what's his ultimate objective? Particularly when it comes to those that are sons and daughters with God as their father. It is immaterial to him whether you are laying up treasures on earth or worrying about earthly things. All he is concerned about is that your mind should be on them and not on God. All he is concerned about is that your mind be on them and not on God. And he will assail and attack you from every direction. You may think that you've won this great battle against Satan because you conquered him when he came in the front door and he talked to you about laying up treasures and working for great mammon and gain. But before you are aware of it, you will find he has come in through the back door and is causing you to have an anxious concern about these things. He is still making you look at them, and so is perfectly content. Did you catch that? You may not have a lot of these things, but you look, and even with a sense of want, can become anxious, or the things that we have, when they begin to totter, we become very, very anxious in other words, Satan's ultimate objective is to take your eyes off of God as your Father who provides and who cares and who will sustain you and put it upon things or other people. And because things and other people have feet of clay, when they totter, we get very, very, very anxious Tim Keller defines an idol as something that is a good thing that has become the ultimate thing. Think about a relationship. Relationships are good, good things. We are made for relationships. But what if the relationship starts to go south? What if there's an argument or a disagreement and we go back to our homes and we're very, very anxious? Am I still in a relationship with this person? Are we still going to go forward? I mean, is it over? And we become very, very anxious because we have raised it to such a level that I have to have that relationship. Now, it's not wrong to be concerned. We don't want to be indifferent and cold to people. But if a good thing like a relationship becomes the ultimate thing, then whenever it wobbles a little bit, we get anxious. Same thing about We've, we saw through the wave of foreclosures that have taken place in the last number of years. If your house begins to totter, if that is the ultimate thing for you, if that is the ultimate thing for you, you will become extremely anxious. Now, it's not wrong to be concerned, but if it's teetering because it's an ultimate thing, you're going to be consumed with anxiety. But notice what David says. David says here in verse 1, he says, the Lord is the stronghold. Let's go down all the way to verse 5. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. What are you afraid of? What makes you right now? Just try to tell me just one thing. There may be multiple things. But right now in your mind, what is it that preoccupies you? What is it that wakes you up at night? What is it that is staring you in the face in the morning? What is it that makes you anxious? What is it that makes you worried? What is it that's making you sick with worry? What is it? What is it that your, where is it that your mind is drifting when it has nothing else to think about? On a boat, you can look, yep, I've already got to have a boat story. On a boat, you can judge a boat's course by turning around and looking at the drift. Where you're drifting, you can tell where you're heading. Where does your mind drift? You can tell your course. You can tell the things that you have put too much weight in, too much weight upon, when you're most anxious about that very thing. Be it money, be it relationships, be it health, be it other people. David has real enemies, but behind that is a diabolical force that wants, by its ultimate objective, to take our gaze from God as our Father who provides and sustains and puts it on this thing. And what David comes to see is that God is immovable. Immovable. He goes in verse 10 and he said, My mother and my father, which we do not believe that his mother and father abandoned him at all, but it's to say that even if the worst could happen, the worst thing in this world would be someone who gave me birth. It would be someone that I bear their name. It would be someone that I am their child. I am their child. If they would abandon me, if the worst could happen, then I know this, the Lord will take me in. You see what happened? He's saying, my parents, and, and parental love is, and acceptance and approval and is a good thing. It's a very, very good thing. But he said, even things such as that have feet of clay, and they can fall. Some of you in this room know real abandonment by your parents. But please, don't carry that over to God. Because God's feet are not of clay. God is bedrock, He is a refuge, and He is immovable. David says in verse 5, it's a little subtle, he takes all of these things and he brings them into the tent with him. And what he's referring to here is he's referring to, he uses, uh, James. Uh, uh, John Boyce said that at this point, that David pulls out every synonym for the tabernacle. That is, the church of their day. It was this huge colored tent. And inside was uh, a place to offer incense, and inside were candelabras, and inside was the altar, or outside was the altar, but you brought the sacrifice uh, in by way of blood, and there was the ark there, and that was where God dwelt. It was his house, his tent, his tabernacle, And it was there that David says in verse 5, in his tent, I'm going to bring all of these things there with me. I'm not going to live in denial. No, 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 this is not going to happen. I'm not going to, oh, you know what? I'm just going to think about that tomorrow. I'm not going to think about it tonight. Don't think about it. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to bring all of my cares right into church. I'm going to bring them into the presence. I'm going to bring them with me to God. And I'm going to look at them, and I'm going to look at God. And I'm going to stop gazing so much at them, and I'm going to fix my gaze on God, who is my Lord. Let me, uh, you'll see in your outline, if you look at verse 4, he tells us three things, and I, I really want to make it either one or, or, or perhaps two things at best. It says that here's what he's going to do. Here's very, very practical what he's going to do, and how we can find a solution to the anxiety and the worry issues that we face. In verse 4 he says, I will seek, I will dwell, and I will gaze. And I'd like to reduce it just by saying what he's going to do is he's going to look, he's going to gaze, he's going to fix his sight on one thing, and that is God. He's looking, and there's competition for that look, but he's going to put the competition aside by gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, that the Lord in his study will become more beautiful than these other things and the promises that they offer. They will pale and diminish as the Lord is found to be more and more holy, merciful, loving, kind, patient, faithful, than any of these things. Um, Coleman Itzkoff went from being... He's a young skateboarder. But he had to give up his career in skateboarding because he couldn't get insurance because he's an um, excellent cello player. And I heard an interview on the radio with Coleman, and he sounds... You know, I've never seen him, but he sounds like what you would think a skateboarder would, would sound like. And uh, and yeah, we all have our stereotypes. So I'm, I'm listening, I'm saying, man, this guy, uh, he sounds just like a skateboarder. But then they began to talk about music and his music, and then he began to talk about all of his studies and his abilities to play the cello. And he said, I had to pick one of those careers because they wouldn't insure me to play the cello if I'm out there with my wrist going, you know, at risk um, by skateboarding. And he said, but you know, playing a cello's not easy. It's got its own risk. And they they said, like, well, what's a risk of playing a cello? He said, well, I was at the Lincoln Center, and I was performing, and um, right for my big, uh, you know, special piece, my big solo, he said my cello just slipped right out from my grasp. He said, cellos have a cello peg at the bottom. And he said, I've learned that you take a file and you sharpen that point, sharpen it, sharpen it, sharpen it, sharpen it. And then when you go out to the wooden concert hall floor, you poke that down, you catch a piece of the wood. And in that way, the cello never goes from you. And he says, you'll see where the cello section is. Because they've put it down there. They've put their stake in the, the wood, as it were, so that they then can play without fear of the instrument getting away from them. David says one thing. I've decided what the one thing is. Not two things, but the one thing. The one thing that I seek is to gaze upon the Lord. Is to dwell with Him in His presence. Now, It's a house that he's talking about, to dwell in the house of the Lord. And the house here is, again, it's a synonym for the tent, the tabernacle, the place where they worship. And only the priest could live in the house. Only the priest could come and go freely. Not even David. He couldn't just say, oh, there's the tent. I'm going to go in. It was a sacred place. So what is he talking about? He's basically not talking about us spending more and more time in the church when the doors are open, even though by this fellowship, by this worship, we, we once again, we separate ourselves from the world and we focus, we, we put that cello peg into the, into the woodwork. We say, one thing. I'm going to focus on one thing this morning. But when he leaves the worship, he carries, as it were, this gaze with him. He comes into the temple and he has a fresh sense of who God is and his character. And that he's not only his creator, but he's his father, his provider and his sustainer. But when he leaves, that is still in his mind. Notice it says at the end of verse 4, to inquire in his temple. What he's doing here is he's waiting on the Lord, as it were. He's not passive, but he's waiting on the Lord in meditation. He's not simply learning knowledge, but it would be for you this morning to, having heard Psalm 27, you take it for yourself and you begin to chew on it. And you think about it. And you think more in light of your own situation. You meditate on it. You get every nutrient out of the Word of God, out of the character of God. It's not simply head knowledge, but now it's intimacy. It is, as David says, what I seek, it's face to face. It's the thing that I want. I want, un, I want to be in God's presence without being separated. I don't want it, to be, I want it to be unbroken. And I want to see Him face to face. I want that intimacy. I don't want there to be gaps. And I don't want anything to make me anxious. So the only thing that I'm anxious about is I'm anxious for that one thing. To gaze upon His beauty. To seek His face. To be in His presence to wait on Him, to meditate on Him. And I know that sounds like a lot of stuff, but it's one thing. It's intimacy with God. It's commu- it's what we mean at Two Rivers when we say communion with God. Face-to-face with someone is the relational gate. There are a lot of faces right there, you know, and out there, and there's just my one face. And I can scan your face and I can see your face, but we're still not intimate until we draw one another aside, and face to face we can talk, and face to face we can learn more of one another, and that is what David wanted. He would have nothing to do with an institutional or an impersonal God. He wanted intimacy with God. Now we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to end, but. How did, David got it. Let me, let me say two things as I end. First of all, some of you guys are, you've got a concern because you're saying, this sounds like a lot of preacher talk. You don't know. <laughs> it's too easy for you to say, don't be anxious, don't worry. Focus on God. Focus on your relationship with God. Go, you know that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His beautiful face. That that just sounds like preacher talk. I mean, preacher, you don't know what I'm facing tonight, today, tomorrow. I mean, I gotta, man, I gotta have something happen, break now. Well, go get a magazine, go read an article, because they promise a real quick solution. But frankly, it won't resolve it. It won't solve your issue. This is not a quick fix. It really isn't. This is a solution that God, through David, says, you've got to wait. This relationship can't be hurried. I'm not Santa Claus. You can't come and say, okay, I'm focusing on you. I'm focusing on you. Hey, 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 send some money, quick. Hey, send that guy back into my life, quick. Hey, I I need to get this job, quick. No. God's saying, sit, my child. Gaze upon me even as I gaze upon you. And this relationship, as it grows, it will overwhelm you. It will flood you. It will mean more than anything else. Alan Gardner was a missionary in the 19th century. And I like it because he was a sailing missionary. He was a a commander of a little small Navy fleet, but after a couple of his ships were shipwrecked, he wound up at Tierra Fuego down at the Argentinian coast. And this is so many, many years ago that they found themselves on a deserted island, he and seven shipmates. And systematically systematically, they starved to death. And starving to death is a horrible way to die. But he died by starvation, and they believed that he died in the cold and in the dark. But they found in his journal his last entry. Well, he died on September the 6th, but his last entry was on September the 3rd. And he quoted from the Psalms where it says, the young lions may suffer from want and hunger, but he who seeks the Lord lacks no good thing. And then he said, I am overwhelmed with the goodness of the Lord that I see. You don't get there. You don't get there to those heights of intimacy to say, I have bread and food that many in the world know not of. This relationship, I feast upon the Lord and His goodness overwhelms me even at the point of starvation. Alan would die and immediately get what he sought. The Lord forever and ever. David... David got it, and it said that he got it when he went to the tent, when he went to the tabernacle. The tabernacle would have been a place where if you used your nose, you could smell the fresh blood. You could smell the fresh blood of lambs or bulls that were slain and their blood was exacted from them to be placed on the altar. You could smell the burning flesh as as they were burnt on the altar. You could walk as you walked in, you could see animals that are innocent that would be slain in place of your guilt and your sin. And mine. But as those animals are slain in order to meet God's holy and just requirement that the, the one who sins must face the penalty of death. As that holy requirement is being met by those animals, we see it transferred to us and in that is His mercy. And David saw it. He said, I deserve to die, but you give me life. And as he captured that again and again, he says... How can I be anxious that this one is the one who deems himself to not only be my Lord, but to be my Father? I will wait on him. If he's provided his very own Son, Jesus Christ, as that ultimate sacrifice on our behalf, how much more will he, our Heavenly Father, care for us? May we gaze upon him May we see Him in these elements this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I do ask. I ask that we would see at this table a sacrifice made, and it not made reluctantly. We are not in a tent, but we are in church. And this is bread and wine but it represents your Son sacrificed to meet your judgment, your righteous judgment, and you received it and apply your Son's life and death to us by mercy. And Father, that moves us like nothing else. That's what we would gaze upon. That's what we would see. We would see in this table renewal we would see in this table that there is nothing to be anxious about except our relationship with You. And now You offer Yourself to us afresh and anew. Some of us, Father, we need to begin again with You. We've been too far, too long away. And we need to come back because it's in that distance that we've become very anxious. And Father, some of us need to surrender. We need to obey. We need to bend the knee first to You. For without You, we are just filled with worry, filled with anxiety as we face this dark world alone. And we would not be alone. Father, would You receive us with this prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, by Your life and by Your death, You offer me not only forgiveness of my sins, but acceptance as a child for God the Father. And I do now confess and receive you. Father, with that surrender, would you begin to give me lift of my anxious moments and the worries that I face that I might know now that new life has begun and you are my Father and I am your child and you will sustain us. For you, Father, are a good Father and a good God to your people. To this end, we pray that you would use these elements to strengthen our soul, that we might gaze upon you, the one thing we seek. In Christ's name we pray.